Welcome to Media Pat. I'm Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Today on the show, we've got the man who wrote and performed what I believe to be the greatest song of all time. It's a song <laughs> that proudly walks in its own bold, unapologetic, full-bodied, sassy, sappy brilliance. The song is a stirring blend of tides and swells like the ocean itself, and it's unafraid to be over the top like an enormous wave that crashes through your heart and forever changes it. Yes, we are talking about Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. Writer and performer Elliot Lurie from Looking Glass joins us very soon. And that should be a liner note. That was well written, wasn't yeah. it, Elliot? That's going to be my blurb. <laughs> but first, Fritz and I have been watching and reading for you. You know, we weed through the chaff and the and the filler so people don't have to. Yeah. We like to offer them good suggestions. Yeah, we're like those people in the in the movie business that read the script. <laughs> and then they just read through all the scripts and then they hand the ones that are good to the people that make movies. Exactly. My, my first one is a sign of how old I am, but I, I unabashedly uh, got tears in my eyes from this great documentary on Netflix called My Love, Six Stories of True Love. This is a story that will reinstill your faith in true love and long relationships. It follows six couples from around the world who've been married at least 40 years, and a few have been married over 60 years, and it investigates the secrets to their success as a couple. And it goes from the USA, which is the first one, to Spain, to Korea, Brazil, Japan, India. The film crews spend a year with each couple. They go through four seasons with each couple, and you watch the everyday dance of care and nurturing each couple goes through. It's based on a Korean movie from 2013 called My Love, Don't Cross the River, which chronicles a Korean couple married 75 years ago. It's so touching and so tender. And for some of us, a 40 to 60 year marriage can only be hypothetical. That makes this movie downright miraculous. Really loved it. Wow. So any of the stories going to stand out as... I think the American story, only because culturally you're connected with it. These are farmers from Vermont, and they're so cute. And they may spend a couple of minutes with the wife combing the husband's hair before they go to bed. Oh, my God, I hate these people. And then... You know, he'll get ready to go to bed and he'll walk over to her side of the bed. And the guy's 85 years old and walks over to her side of the bed under his own power, gives her a little (laughs) kiss on the forehead and said, you know, honey, you've never looked as beautiful as you do right now. And you fall off your chair. It's so sweet. It it will fill your heart. He's a prince. He is a prince. That is adorable. You're right. All right. I'm going to watch. What do you got? Okay. So my first pick is called Pink Colon, because every good documentary, Elliot, needs a colon. Pink colon, and do not forget to spell pink without an I, but with an an exclamation point. It's key. All I know so far, pink colon, all I know so far. It's a documentary. In All I Know So Far, Pink has released a documentary to match her new song title, hashtag branding. The film is a behind-the-scenes look at Pink as she balances family and life on the road, leading up to her first Wembley Stadium performance on 2019's Beautiful Trauma World Tour. Pink's doc is especially pertinent because, on a very grand scale, she balances the very same work-home-family-kids equation faced by women everywhere during the pandemic. Pink says that biology pulls at mothers differently than it does fathers and that 
Were she to tour without her kids, she'd be up all night worrying about them. So when Pink is on the road, they are a circus family, and it is fun and fascinating to watch. I've always been, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I've always been perfectly content with Pink's gorgeous and often anthemic music, which speaks directly to the souls of millions. I never fully appreciated all of the Cher, Gaga, Elton extravaganza that turns concerts into Cirque du Soleil or the Carnival of Venice masked ball. You can just stand there and sing, as my Uncle Bernie once complained about Helen Reddy in Vegas. But, <laughs> but, but Pink is an actual acrobat who sings while being flung across the sky. Her core must be granite, and it is a wonder to behold. I mean, seriously, they are flinging this woman. Now, I have not seen the documentary, but I've seen clips of her concerts where she does like the full Cirque du Soleil thing yeah. from one side of a 7,000-seat stadium to another, Yeah, and she's really talented. I've always liked her. I just like her attitude about everything. No, she's outstanding, so I'm now obsessed with Pink. Okay, and apparently this was not the first Pink documentary. You can travel along her media path back to 2014 and find Pink colon staying true on prime video in which pink breaks the mold bringing her career to a new level in 2013 with a world tour that entertains unlike ever before get inside access to the girl who got the party started with exclusive interviews and rare live performances so you can get your pink on it's all there i'm a big fan yeah. she also wrote the current theme for ellen degeneres show too did she? Yeah, so that, that residual is going to come to an end here at the end of the year. But I think Pink's doing okay. Yeah, doing fine. <laughs> All right, so i got to stick an environmental doc in there whenever I can. This I know, is called that's your Kiss thing. Kiss the Ground. That's your jam. On Netflix, if you're one of those people who think we need to change our behavior with how we treat this planet, this is a film for you. It looks at what's called regenerative agriculture. And here's what regenerative agriculture is. Industrial farming, which is the bulk of farming in the United States, is really bad for the climate. It releases greenhouse gases. It ultimately destroys our health and the environment. And how does it do that? And this is the key to the film. It destroys the soil. This movie explains that soil is the key to everything. The chemicals we use to grow massive harvests of crops, the overplowing we do to get maximum yield out of fields destroys the soil. And this all destroys the soil's ability to store carbon, which is the key building block in healthy plants and healthy food and healthy people. It's called carbon sequestration. It's the big topic now. There are interviews with chefs and farmers and ranchers and scientists. The movie's produced by Leo DiCaprio, who produces a lot of really good environmental documentaries. Mm -hmm. And it's narrated by Woody Harrelson. It's based on a book by Josh Tickell. If you want to learn about a really effective solution to the climate crisis, this is a simple and relatively fast way to do it. I recommend this film. It's really interesting. That sounds really cool. So that, did they explain that this is what led to the Dust Bowl? Yes. Okay. Uh, the Dust Bowl, as a matter of fact, the first quarter of the film describes how that happened, being overplowed and no irrigation and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So yeah, we have to be good, good movie. responsible. Farmers, I say, as someone who's never farmed. I haven't planted a carrot. I'm like not someone who should be speaking about farming. All right, so have you watched Hacks? Has anyone watched Hacks? Oh, Dina has. Okay. Hacks on HBO. Now, HBO is, you know, they're coy. They just release these shows like one or two at a time, you know. They leave you just kind of whimpering by your television. Mm -hmm. But uh, Hacks is coming out one, one or two at a time. And... I will say this. Jean Smart is on fire this COVID oh, yeah. season with nomination buzz churning for her roles in The Watchmen, Mayor of Easttown, and now Hacks. And the, the part she plays in Mayor of Easttown is completely different than the part she plays in Hacks. It's called Acting Fritz.
<laughs> I love her. <laughs> so in Hacks, uh, Gene plays a legendary but Vegas-hardened cranky comedian intersecting with a sharp what? but... Internet. Cranky comedian. Yes, but <laughs> a cranky <laughs> comedian. Fritz, you're going to be like, I don't get it. <laughs> um, <laughs> intersecting with a sharp but internet-canceled and embittered young comedy writer. A darkly amusing mentorship forms between the two and antics ensue. This is smart, funny writing, and in its own lovingly warped way, it celebrates the power of mentorship. Good selection. Yeah. I love her to death. I, I, I'm on a nonprofit board with her, Hill, Hillside Homes in Pasadena. Do you guys have your picture together? Yes, we do. Okay, I'm going to put it. And now it's suddenly that has value because you mentioned it. I've got to go find it. Yeah, find it, and then I'll put it in the, in okay. the YouTube version of this but, very program. Uh, I, I, I'm so thankful for her recent um, sort of wash of success with all these shows because her husband passed away about a month ago. Oh, no. And he's a sweet guy, and she's got two children, one adopted from China. She's the loveliest person you'll ever meet and if I could just add this Hillside Home is an organization that rescues at-risk children from abusive family situations and there, there are about a hundred clients as they call them at this facility beautiful facility it's like a college in Pasadena and she walks the walk. She's not the typical star that writes a check for ten thousand. You mean like Elliot? Well, no, no, I, I didn't mean that. I just okay. I wanted to draw him into the conversation. Sure. He might know her, but uh, but she like at, at Thanksgiving she'll put on a witch's costume and go and hand out candy and engage with every kid in the Aww. place. She's really a lovely person and deserves her recent major okay. success. Cool. I have a personal question to ask. My media path has some cul-de-sacs. Was Jean smart in designing women? Yes. Okay. We, did you say that your media path has some cul-de-sacs? <laughs> I, I have to remember that one. That's a beauty. That's a, that's a great bumper sticker we ought to think about for marketing. I didn't use that when someone starts to talk to me about heavy metal music. I there you say, go. And that, 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 that path, my path there has some cul-de-sacs. Has some cul-de-sacs. I'm very sorry. A road not traveled. I love that. <laughs> Elliot Lurie is an American musician who was the lead guitarist, songwriter, and frequently the lead vocalist in the New Jersey band Looking Glass from 1969 until 1974. He wrote and sang lead on their 1972 iconic number one smash, Brandy, parentheses, you're a fine girl, and their 1973 top 40 single, Jimmy Loves Marianne. After leaving the band in the mid-1970s, Lurie released a self-titled album and a single, Disco, parentheses, where are you going to go? He later signed with Arista Records and wrote songs for Chapel Music and Screen Gems Music. In the 1980s, Lurie wrote and produced music for private businesses. In 1985, he became head of the music department at 20th Century Fox. That year, he produced the soundtrack from the John Travolta and Jamie Lee Curtis film, Perfect. Since then, he has worked as music supervisor on numerous films, including Alien 3, A Night at the Roxbury, Riding in Cars with Boys, I Spy, and Spanglish. In recent years, Elliot has returned to live performing. Welcome, Elliot. Yay. Thank you. Hi. So nice to meet you. So my first question to you is, could you tell us about the acapella version on your YouTube page of Brandy with the Young Guns Quartet? Yes. Uh, I'll tell you how that came about. It was one of the few uh, bright moments of the COVID fiasco. I call um, these COVID blessings. Oh, uh, yeah, it was in a way. I had been scheduled to do a show, and uh, I had written a song that really doesn't work without background singers. So a couple of times I'd gone to various cities, and I tried to find the best vocal group that I could 
that I could afford to come sing with me at the show. So I had scheduled to do a show with them in upstate New York. And the show got canceled because of COVID. But we stayed in touch. And uh, the leader of the group, Greg Mallett, called me one day and he said, um, Elliot, we've worked up this arrangement of Brandy. And uh, would you like to hear it? And is there anything we could do with it? He sent it to me. And I loved it. And I said, well, this is perfect. Let's, let's zoom it. And I'll sing the lead. And you guys do your parts. And we'll edit the video and, and put it up there. And it came out great and very well received. Really did. Can you play a moment of that for us, Thomas? There you are. You could tell it's COVID. Bad teeth, long hair. <laughs> yeah, but you got great lighting. That's not bad for Zoom. <laughs> People just look so joyful when they're singing that song. Yeah, here's the sad thing. Every kid singing with you wasn't born when this thing was a hit. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's true. Um, that's spectacularly beautiful, though, and thank your you. voice is great. Thank you. I was really um, pleasantly surprised when I put my voice in with theirs and uh, how, how great the blend was. And, uh, you know, just hearing it in my headphones as I was singing with them, it, it looks like I'm having a blast. It looked and like I was. you were having yeah, a good time. I was. I was. You know, I was a DJ for 15 years. And my career ended, I think, after Brand just after Brandy peaked. It ended around 1978, and I, I was thinking of all the songs that I played most frequently, and I think Looking Glass and Brandy was one of those right up in the top three, the most frequently requested and played songs. And in the other categories, for bathroom songs, of course, it was Stairway to Heaven and Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues. But yours was one of the singly most requested songs. What's and a bathroom song? I don't know uh, that where it, it, Well, the Stairway to Heaven was 8 minutes and 20 seconds long, which was long enough to take oh, a bathroom uh, break okay, when you're a DJ. And Nights in White Satin was about 7 minutes and 40 seconds. Yeah, when you hear the guy start to talk, run back to the mic. Yeah, right. But, uh, but I, I just wanted to say this, that I think that Brandy is one of the most beautifully written story songs, which to me makes a successful song. You hear story songs in country music a lot yeah. now and yeah. in yesteryear, yeah. but this is a beautiful song. And what I was so surprised to hear was you improvised the words to this as you were doing the music. It wasn't like you sat and wrote this beautiful story and then put it to music. Well, up to a point. Mm -hmm. Once I got the first part of it going then it was kind of tricky to get the whole story complete in three minutes and, you know, get all the meter matching and get the rhymes in there. So working that part out, you know, that, that was not improvisational. But the beginning of the story just sort of came. Maybe you were Brandy in a former life. <laughs> 
possible. I mean, what is your background in terms of sea towns or the, that type of atmosphere? <laughs> People always ask me, they say, uh, were you in like in the Navy or the Merchant Marine? <laughs> I, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and the biggest ship I've ever been on to that point was the Staten Island Ferry. So <laughs> uh, it's, it's just, but I, you know, I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of writing in high school uh, and even in college, uh, short stories and fiction and things like that. And, you know, the teachers always said, ah, oh, this is great. And a couple of them were published and this and that. So I liked writing uh, stories and, um, you know, this one is three Did minutes. anybody ever approach you and say, let's flesh this out into like a film? Absolutely. I've gotten wow. a number of uh, pitches on it and a couple of completed screenplays. Wow. But, you know, for me, I mean, I, I kind of, I don't discourage them. Uh, and I tell them that, you know, if you want to acquire the rights, they're, they're, you can get them. But for me, part of the satisfaction of the story is that it's three minutes long and it rhymes mm -hmm. you know and that's it as far as i'm concerned that's where we leave brandon like, and the sailor it's, and it's done it's got a bridge we're done <laughs> exactly. very complete exactly. wow <laughs> but it's so evocative and it really puts you there and that's i think why all the requests it's not just that it's a beautiful song it's that every time you hear the song you're there you're with these people and that's that's what i've heard and, and you know if, if you were a disc jockey, uh, Fritz, you know. I mean, there were bigger hits in 1972 than Brandy, but a lot of them have not had the legs, as they say, that no. Brandy has. I think your voice and the story, it's just a beautiful story that you can hear it a million times and uh, and uh, just fall in love with it. It's uh, really... And, and I think you mentioned this yourself, that... What keeps it afloat in people's minds is you can't categorize the song. You guys are obviously Looking Glass or R&B based because you have these beautiful harmonies like and, and you know, you played in New Jersey and I'm thinking like the Rascals of this great sort of blue eyed soul. For Very much an influence on yeah. us. I made the Rascals. But you couldn't plug it into that. You couldn't plug it into pop. You couldn't plug it into R&B. It was just kind of floated out there on its own. Well, Part of, part of the reason for that, I think, is because the production of the track was what I call uh, the hunt and peck process. We had recorded the song a number of times, at least twice, and it came out not sounding like a hit record, and we were looking for a hit record. And Clive Davis, who signed us to the label, was very generous with us and said, well, if you guys want to finish the record in the production, go ahead, give it a shot. So... You know, it, as you say, it doesn't sound like an R&B record. It doesn't sound like a typical 70s pop record, like maybe the Grassroots. As much as I love the Grassroots, that's a 70s pop record. Mm -hmm. This one is a little of this and a little of that. And it, uh, I think part of it is because we kind of didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> when it sounded good, we said, okay, that's it. Wow. Yeah, but I think a key to success is knowing when it's good. You know, because you have to, we're all, our minds are like computers. We're constantly eliminating what sucks. So that's yeah, a well, part we, of We eliminated a, a lot of point. things that sucked on that record. <laughs> and, and, and you're talking about that, talking about knowing when it's a hit record. I mean, before the hit version of this came out, there were several earlier manifestations. I love the interconnecting lines in music, and one of the first guys you worked with was Steve Cropper, yes. who was, you know, the house band of Stax Records yes. and Booker T and the MGs. Yes did a version with you, 
And then, I don't know if it was Clive Davis or somebody said, it sounds great, it's not a hit record. And I thought, wow, what does that mean? Yeah, well, we, we went down, uh, Clive suggested that we have Steve Carper produce us. And, you know, we loved that idea. He was, you know, an Major. iconic guy and great player and producer. So we went down to Memphis and we did four sides with him. And we came back to New York and we had a meeting with Clive and we played the four sides. And they were very well done, but they didn't sound like hits, which is to say they sounded like a good bar band, which is basically what we were, recorded really well, but it didn't sound like you'd hear it on the radio. Wow. I don't even know how you analyze something as that, but yeah, that, that's the key to people's success in the business is knowing when that... Well, especially sh- back then, because again, you'll know as, as a disc jockey, um, singles on radio, first of all, AM was still around. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember we did a monophonic mix and a stereo mix of that, mm-hmm. one for AM and one for FM. And, uh, you know, there was a certain sound that bursted out of the radio. Mm-hmm. And those were the singles, those were the hits. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and that's what Clive had. He had, <laughs> he had, the, he had ear, the ears, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So uh, you did a solo album, and I looked up some of the stuff. So let's talk about the days on the Sunset on the Sunset Strip, living in Chateau Marmont and making music in the 70s. Who were you hanging out with? What all went on? And we want gory details. <laughs> Gosh. I don't know how gory I can get. I, I, I did this solo album, and uh, Clive was still at Epic Records, and he suggested, and my A&R man, Stephen Paley, uh, suggested that I go out to Los Angeles and have a guy named David Kirschenbaum do the album, produce the album out here. And I did, and we had the best L.A. players that you can imagine. Usually half the band was Toto, and the other half of the band was the Jazz Crusaders. I mean, I was like a, a little bit in awe of, of the band. And uh, I did live at the Chateau Marmont before it was renewed and re- revived it was you know it was the old chateau of mama with the couches with the stuffing coming out <laughs> i had a gorgeous view of the boulevard and uh we used to run down uh to there was a there was a a, a mexican place on la brea we used to run down to la brea get two burritos bring them back to the suite at the Chateau Marmont, you know, watch Fritz. Low point of your career. And, uh, and Best he, one and stoned. He, but, um, <laughs> but the album, uh, despite the good players, uh, part of the problem with the album that I have, and I, I can only listen to certain songs on it now, is it was one of these records where, um, you know, you're trying very hard to get a, a, a hit single. And when you have an album full of songs that just miss being hit singles, it's not a very listenable album. And then the other thing that happened was, and I don't blame this at all for the lack of success of the album, I think the the real reason it didn't succeed was because it wasn't really a a focused piece of work. But during the time that I was living it up at the Chateau Marmont, Clive had that famous issue with the bar mitzvah and had to leave CBS Records. <laughs> oh, please tell that story because I... You don't know the story of Clive Davis movie? and the bar mitzvah? Paid for it out of company funds or Clive, something. Clive Davis, oh, yeah. as as successful a record man as he was, and he was, he still is one of the most successful ever, somehow or another there was politics going on when they wanted him out. And, uh, you know, CBS was a big company and the record company was only a very small part of CBS. So something happened with the politics for the 
they weren't happy with Clive. So they said that he had used company funds to play for his son's bar mitzvah. And they one day told him to pack up all his stuff and unceremoniously, unceremoniously leave the big black tower on 52nd Street. And when I came back from the Chateau Marmont with my album under my hands, there were all new people there who oh, you know, said, oh, okay, oh, yeah, nice to see you. Wow. Yeah, you remember you're the Brandy guy, right? Oh, wow. we've had a change so, in yeah, management. But again, I don't blame that for the fact that the album did succeed. I don't think it was that great a project, but it certainly didn't help. <laughs> well, you know, we, we interviewed Gary Puckett. Mm -hmm. You might have known him from mm -hmm. the road years and stuff. And the union gap had a situation very similar to what Looking Glass had, which was the record company wanted to put session players on their music not giving you guys credibility as great musicians, and you had to talk your way into playing on your own record, which was very similar to what he had to go through. He said, no, we had we had to insist that we play on our own record, and it was a big fight. And we did the same, because the, the version that finally uh, came out, the production was started uh, by a staff producer at CBS, and he came out to meet with us and told us what he was going to do. It Sort of at the end of the conversation, he just threw it away, you know, and I'm going to have the top guys playing on it. And we went, huh, what? Uh, you know, and we said, no, that, that's, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, you had a song that you've got posted on your YouTube channel called Rainbow Girl, which illustrates the type of kids who were drawn to the strip in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So who was the Rainbow Girl? What was she looking for? In other words, this prototype. Did she find it? And what is she doing today? <laughs> Oh man! Let's let's hope she's still living and breathing today, because <laughs> the Rainbow Room uh, back in the '70s, and really right through the '80s, and as far as I know, I haven't been there in a long time, and may still be that way. But it was legendary for you know for for abuse and mm -hmm. and and outrageous outfits and things going on behind the bar that you didn't want to know about. Um, but I often went there on my own when I was making that album because I didn't really know many people in LA and yeah you know that's where the musicians hang out and sometimes I run into a musician I knew and I would see these women who were just so obviously trying to find the right guy and I, the right guy for them I think was like a recognizable rock star of, of whom there were many at, at the Rainbow Room in those days um, so the song is kind of about a girl who you know drives in from uh, from Sherman Oaks or Van Nuys or wherever, and you know, she goes to the Rainbow Room and she's looking for uh, the lead singer of such and such. And she goes there, you know, three or four nights a week, and sometimes she goes home alone, and sometimes she goes home with the lead singer. So Fritz, where is she today? That's a very good question. Uh, probably the hostess at uh, Morton's Steakhouse. I, I, I don't know. She could be. I think she's in Palm Beach. She's married to somebody in, who, who is very big in the nonprofit world. And, uh, the and bass she's, player from Whitesnake. She, there's, a, there's been a lot of work done. <laughs> but can't. that's another great story that, I mean, you're a great uh, storyteller. Have you ever Thank thought you. about uh, t you know, broadening that talent out in a novel or you know, other written pieces? Or? I, I haven't really. I sometimes sit down and try to like, recollect things that have happened and not really a memoir, but just sort of episodes uh, from it. And, and uh, I find it really difficult uh, to write anything of length. Maybe that's why I wrote a great three-minute yeah. song. That's yeah. as much as I have to say. Some people would say that's even harder to keep it to three yeah. minutes mm -hmm. and then, you know, beginning, middle, and end. 
Yeah. So we've got some brandy trivia. Okay. Are you are, are you ready to play? I'm good okay. for that. So, <laughs> did you know, Elliot, that following the re- you probably do you know you know the brandy Not trivia. All of them. I've just I'm, learned. I'm often surprised. All right. Well, let's see stuff. if I can trip <laughs> okay. you up. Okay. Did you know that following the release of the song Brandy, the name Brandy increased in popularity? Oh, the power of music. According to data from the Social Security Administration, Brandy was the 353rd most popular name for a girl in 1971. Far more popular in the name of an alcoholic beverage. (laughs) But in 1972, the name leaped to number 140. And in 1973, it got all the way up to the 82nd spot. With a bullet. So, with a bullet. So, <laughs> so, how often do you meet a girl named Brandy who credits you with her name? Uh, I, I don't meet them that often, but on Facebook, I get a ton of them that either are named Brandy after the song, or uh, moms who name their daughters Brandy after the song. Um, so, quite a few, and it's interesting because most of them spell it the way the title of the song is, but a lot of them have changed it to. B-R-A-N-D-I or B-R-A-N-D-I-E. Are um, they ever not such a fine girl? <laughs> uh, parenthetically, they're all fine girls. <laughs> but it didn't start as Brandy. What did it start as? Oh, you... oh, no, it did. It's Here's more f- trivia. Uh, You're on to something, Fritz. Okay. I'm going to pull at that thread. Okay. okay. All, right. all right. So Barry Manilow's 1974 hit, Mandy, was yes. a cover of a song originally called Brandy. Yeah. Released in February 1972 by Scott English. However, Manilow changed the title following the success of the Looking Glass single so as not to get the two songs confused. Have you met Barry Manilow? And how pissed is he? <laughs> I hear that he holds a grudge. I, I have never met Barry Manilow, um, although I see his picture right up there. I've never <laughs> met him, but uh, Clive was the executive on both. So Clive, of course, and, and it's funny that he found the English song Brandy, which was actually released before our Brandy was, but it was a very minor hit in England. But Clive, at those great years, found the song. He said, this can be a hit for somebody. But by the time he married Barry Manilow to the song, we had already had our hit, mm-hmm. so they had to change the title. But Brandy wasn't the original title that you wrote. It was the original title of the song, but it wasn't the first name I came up with oh. when I was writing. I had a high school sweetheart named Randy with an R. And the way I write, and I still write mostly the same way, is I'll play some chords on the guitar or on the piano until I get something working. And I'll kind of just free associate and sing along with it. And, you know, I guess I was thinking of her and I sang the name Randy. And then once I got the story started, I said, well, Randy's got a problem because it can be either a male or female name, number one. And if she's going to be a barmaid, she's got to be Brandy. Mm. So that's how it came about. A so great where's story. Randy and I'm still today? in touch with Brandy. She lives in Oregon, and she, late in life, uh, became a painter, an artist. Really? And I have one of her paintings <gasps> hanging in my music oh. room. Oh, that's so cool. That's, that's a full circle moment. All right, so we have more Brandy trivia. Okay. In his 2014 memoir, Face the Music, Paul Stanley from Kiss wrote that Brandy helped him, helped inspire the band's 1976 hit, Hard Luck Woman, with lyrics such as... Rags, the sailor's only daughter, a child of the water, too proud to be a queen. Rags, I really love you. I can't forget about you. You'll be a hard luck woman, baby, till you find your man. So basically, he's saying to her, like, you know, I'll have sex with you, but I'm not going to marry you. I've heard that story, uh, and I've never met Paul Stanley. And uh, 
I'm glad that my song inspired him to write a good song, you know? Okay, the 2005 song, Same Old 45 by Sarah Borges. Am I saying this right, Elliot? Borellis? No, it's B-O-R-G-E-S from the album Silver City, retells the story of Brandy from her point of view. So here are some of the lyrics. Dark moon, bring him back. I ain't seen him since the moon was a fingernail. And you know I shed a tear for him as this ship was setting sail, sitting in my room playing the same old 45 about a girl named Brandy, the would-be sailor's pride. I had heard about that, but I've never heard it, I don't think, and I certainly didn't know the lyric. All right, it's quiz time. Mm. Is everybody ready? Mm. Okay, I think you got. You guys can all play. The song Brandy did not appear on which of the following films or TV shows? Lords of Dogtown, Say Anything, Charlie's Angels, A Very Brady Sequel, Gardens of the Galaxy Volume 2, The Black Klansman, The Simpsons, episode Principal Charming, Selma sings a low mournful styling of the song to Lisa as she is putting her to bed. One of my favorite uses. Kevin James sings the song at a karaoke bar in an episode of The King of Queens. In Still the Beaver, June sues Wally's crying firstborn, Brandy, with the song. That certainly was not written there. Okay, I think you've won. <laughs> but <laughs> all, wanna, the made, ones, uh, all the other ones are... Yeah, the, all it the has other to ones. be one of the most used songs in pop music history. I don't, know, I don't know that it's one of the most used songs in pop music history because there are things that are like more anthemic that you see used in, in uh, uh, you know, because it's a story song. Mm-hmm. So either the story of the movie or TV show has to have something to do with that story or it's basically what we used to call when I was a music supervisor, source music, which means it's coming from like in uh, Black Landsman. They're just sitting in a bar, and it happens to be 1972, and Brandy's playing in the bar. Uh, now, the thing, the thing in The Simpsons was a lot of fun. They made that episode when I was working at Fox, and Fox made The Simpsons. So I was friendly with uh, a couple of the producers, up. and they thought it would be a good gag to have, uh, to have that going on. So uh, uh, some of those uses were because I was involved in one way or another behind the scenes on some of those productions. Oh, wow. But I, I bet the moment you suggested it, people were like, perfect. I would never suggest it. Oh, because really? Because, you know, you can't be a buyer and a seller at the same mm-hmm. time, so I'd never suggest it. But a lot of the people that I worked with when I was in that role as a music supervisor knew that I had done Brandy. And like the guys at The Simpsons, they thought, ah, oh, let's use Elliot's song. We'll have, you know, we'll have Lisa sing it. It'll be great. And it'll work in the episode, you know. So, so you, 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 when you retired the band, mm-hmm. um, you wrote for other people? A bit, but uh, but uh, mostly I was you know kind of a staff writer. I didn't really write for other people. I had a publishing deal, so I would you know turn them in their required songs every year. But I wasn't real active at it. But every I mean you had, you had a broad expanse of uh, flavors there. You had like country, you had Kenny Chesney all the way over to well, Kenny Chesney covered Brandy, which I thought was really oh. cool, and the Chili Peppers covered Brandy, which is kind of a broad range for mm-hmm. the for the song. Um, but other than that, I don't really have a, a lot of a lot of covers. What happened was after the solo album didn't do anything, I was kind of adrift. I was living in New York City, and uh, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Nobody was really interested in making another record with me. Um, so I decided to move out to L.A., see what was going on out here. I had a friend out here, a TV producer, who'd moved out from New York a couple of years before I did. 
guy I'd known since we were 12 years old, went to school with a guy named Stan Rogo, produced the series uh, Lizzie McGuire, among other things. Oh, yeah. um, so he said, uh, and I, was, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was ready to take a job as a salesman at Radio Shack. And uh, he said to me, you, can, you can't do that. Let me introduce you to this guy. And he introduced me to an agent at CAA who was in their film music department. And he said, uh, well, he said, you know, with your background in the record business, maybe you'd like to be a music supervisor, make soundtrack albums, things like that. I didn't even know what that was because it was a brand new position in the industry there. And he said to me, well, there's only real two, two people who are doing a lot of it right now successfully. One is, he mentioned the name I didn't know, and he said the other one is this woman, Becky Shargo, who did um, Urban Cowboy and Footloose. And Becky Shargo was a name that rang a bell with me. She had been the A&R coordinator for that solo album that I did in L.A. Wow. So I called her up, and I said, I'm looking for something to do. Becky, do you need help? She said, oh, I'm very busy, but I can't really afford to pay you. I said, well, if you'll teach me this business, I'll work for nothing for you. And Very she smart. did, and I did. And What's out. a music supervisor do? It's it's changed a lot, but basically, it's a it's an individual who's responsible for making sure that all of the music in the movie is the way the filmmaker or the TV producer, if it's TV, uh, wants it to be. And sometimes that involves making creative suggestions. Sometimes it simply involves business of acquiring rights or getting an artist to sing on a soundtrack album and dealing with their record company and getting them to do it. And it's changed quite a bit because in the 80s, if you recall, MTV used to play all these music videos from films and they were basically trailers for the films uh, and free advertising for the movie companies. So that was a very big part of it back then in the the 80s was, you know, getting a hit single with a music video to promote the film. Can you explain to us the difference between people who want to be paid if you use their music and people who want you to use their music because it's promotional? I think the big difference is how desperate you are. I mean, you know, if you're with any kind of major music publisher or record company, they're not going to let anyone use your music or their music since they technically own it without paying for it. But if you're an independent artist, you know, you get a chance to ex- get your music exposed on something that a lot of people are going to see, I can understand why you would, uh, you know, why you want it done and do it for nothing. And we what? talked about that with Denny Tedesco. Even though his dad and the, and the session players mm-hmm. and the wrecking crew created the music, mm-hmm. they still had to pay the rights for it. And Wheezy went through that whole right situation with the Castles movie. But it, it, that's just amazing to me that, hey, I, I, I was there when they recorded the song. Can I just borrow it for my movie? <laughs> yeah, I've heard about that, and that's really too bad because I'd yes. love to see that movie. I'd love to see it oh. get made, and I'd love to see it. Yeah, oh, well, it's, it's made. The record it, crew is made. It's a fantastic movie, and I know you're a fan of session players oh, yeah. and the best in the business back yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll moved give on you a to, copy. He's moved on to the next era, which is going to be the immediate family. So yeah. Wadi, mm-hmm. Wadi Wachtel, and Danny Korchmar, those guys, uh, Lee Sklar. So, yeah, he's now he's got help with uh, acquiring the rights and everything. But when it comes to YouTube, it seems like things are shifting towards you, YouTube or, or the labels or the publishers gaining an understanding that having everyone do covers is good for us. And they seem to be less restrictive in terms of what you can do. Well, they get paid for it, though. 
on YouTube, they all of the majors have what's called a blanket license. Okay. So they make an overall deal with YouTube and say you can use any of our repertoire, whether you're Sony Records, Warner Brother Records, uh, you know, big music publishers. And then theoretically what's supposed to happen, although I'm not sure if I'm checking my statements that it's done accurately, <laughs> but supposedly they're supposed to keep track, YouTube, uh, of the number of plays that the song gets and the record company or music publisher splits it up based on the number of plays that it's get, or at least in theory, that's the way it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a, a, a good compromise or a good arrangement because it used to be that they would just, they would flag you or they would mute it or, yeah. and now they just kind of like put a widget on it or that leads to purchasing the song. Yeah, and the next mountain to climb is going to be TikTok because TikTok is the same kind of thing and they're starting to make, TikTok is starting to make deals with the record companies and the publishers, but, um, uh, you know, they, they haven't gotten as far with that as they did with YouTube. How, how do you feel about where we are in it with that right now? The, the music business is 180 degrees different than it was when you had your hits. Now it's streaming and uh, and downloads and uh, bands have to do concerts in order to make money and sell merchandise and stuff. How, what are your feelings about where it is right now? For someone like me, who's a quote-unquote heritage artist, you know, and has a song that's kind of become a standard, it's a good thing because it keeps it out there in front of the public. Young people discover it. It probably earns at least as much money from me as it would if those things didn't exist. But I think for new artists, it's really not so good. Not so good because those services, they don't really pay a lot. Uh, you know, you look at your, your statement, I mean, you know, and you see, oh, yeah, you know, 140 million streams, $2.30. <laughs> I know. You know, and it's, it and it's, right. and it's especially, uh, it's especially bad for the songwriters. Because what happens is the record companies get a decent pay. But the record companies are still paying most artists, especially the ones who have old contracts like I do, the same rate that they used to get for records. So, you know, the record company is paying you 14 cents on the dollar. And uh, for, for songwriters, it's even worse. So, But, again, you know, it makes the music very easily and readily accessible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are those instances where people just jump out of YouTube or jump out of TikTok and become overnight sensations. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, beginning bands can self-record and self-publish and deliver their product on their own website, and then they don't get into a big thing of being in debt to a record company and have to pay back everything the record company gave them. That That is very true, and, and more and more artists are doing that. When I write and record new stuff now that's under my name, I just put it up on all the streaming services through a little distri uh, distributor that I have, and I put it up on YouTube myself, whether it's just like a lyric video or a little thing that my wife shoots at home, you know. So that does eliminate the middleman, but then you have to get noticed. Yeah. You know, and there's so much out there. How do you promote it? How do you get noticed? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're going to do, I know, a good way to get noticed. It's a little more brandy trivia. Okay. I think we'll get you noticed. Okay. <laughs> Which of the following acts has not covered the song Brandy? Uh, Ray Conniff, <laughs> Washboard Jungle. <laughs> Ziggy Marley, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Kenny Chesney, Gonzalez, or Big Head Todd and the Monsters? I think it's Ziggy Marley has not done it. Completely made that up. Yeah. I'd okay. like to hear a Ziggy Marley version. I would like to hear his version. I think he <laughs> wow. did an excellent take on it. So uh, we heard you tell us when you got here that you're a part of Yacht Rock. So we want you to back up a moment and ex explain and describe 
Yacht Rock and its origins, and then how you come in. He's hydrating for this adventure. <laughs> so I sort of had retired from the music supervision business probably around, I don't know, 2010 maybe. And, you know, I was kind of semi-retired. And I got a phone call from a guy who says, uh, my name is Peter Olson, and I'm in a band called Yacht Rock Review. Uh, do you know what Yacht Rock is? And I said, no, I don't know what it is. He explained to me that Yacht Rock is this subgenre of music, and the term was originally made popular on some sarcastic YouTube videos that kind of poked fun at artists like Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins and all those very highly produced, slick, adult contemporary sort of blue-eyed. Well, they're adult contemporary, but they're also kind of blue-eyed soul. You know, mm. there's a. It's you can you know it when you hear it if it's yacht rock. <laughs> and there are also these great debates about is it yachty or naughty. You know, oh. uh, as to what is a true yacht rock song and what isn't. Like some people will consider the Eagles yacht rock, but other people will say no, no, it's just soft rock, but it's not yacht rock because it doesn't have that that. Blue-eyed soul. Are the Eagles are more canyon rock. Yeah. If I can create subgenres, and I'd be happy to. <laughs> That's a good idea. So he he explained to me that that my song, I guess for the sound of it, but also because of the subject matter, was you know part of the original pantheon of, of yacht rock. Well, pedigree. And he also explained to me that this band, which was basically just a great, great cover band. They were doing shows in which they played only Yacht Rock songs, and they were called Yacht Rock Review. And he said, you know, we're really getting really popular with this. We're out of Atlanta, and we would love for you to come out. We're also going to get uh, Peter Beckett, who was from Player, Baby Come Back, and uh, Walter Egan, who did Magnet and Steel. Mm -hmm. um, I forget who else was on that first show. He said, well, come down to Atlanta, and we'll pay you well and you'll do this show with us and I said oh okay I'll go check it out I wasn't doing much and we did this show at a park in Atlanta and there must have been like 4,000 people there <laughs> and the crowd is very interesting they're not my age our age or even your age they're they're younger they're like you know in their 20s to 40s they're almost all exclusively white they're all really drunk and wearing <laughs> sailor hats oh, man. and partying like there's no tomorrow. Wow. So it's like Parrot Heads Next Generation. Uh, kind of. A kind of, except aren't Parrot Heads only his fans? Yeah, or but it it's genre? a type of person. Okay. It's a type of person that really wants to wear a funny hat and get extremely drunk. These people are called, some of them call themselves anchorheads. Okay. Okay, Ooh, there's a group I like of anchorheads. But, but... The music is extremely popular. The Yacht Rock Review does very well. There's a West Coast equivalent of them called uh, Yachtly Crew, I think they call themselves. <laughs> oh, that's uh, so funny. Yeah, but um, but I do a lot of shows with them. So is there a tour in this after the pandemic's over? Or Yeah, we're do I'm doing a private uh, uh, gig with them uh, in September, and we'll, we'll do more of them because they're still extremely popular. You know, they tour all over the country. They're... Uh, I played with them last, the last show I did before the pandemic. We played at, uh, what's the theater over at Wilshire, uh, on East Wilshire? Anyway. Wiltern? Which one? Wiltern? Yeah, we played at Wiltern. It was the last show I did before the pandemic. We played at Wiltern. Wow. We sold out. They do very well. 
So what are their top five songs? Like what? What do you? Would, you if you have said Hall okay, Oates. Hall and Oates has got to be up there at least once, maybe twice. You yeah. got Rich Girl. Yeah. And you got uh, You Make My Dreams Come True. Those have to be in the set. Okay. Um, then you get uh, Little by uh, Minute by Minute by Michael McDonald. Sure. That's a big one. Uh, Kenny Loggins is, is oh, big yeah. in the set. Andy Christopher uh, you're Cross. not in your head. You must be a big Gat Rock fan. Um, <laughs> th- those those are those are right up there. Oh, uh, sailing. There's a guy who 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 does the shows with us sometime. He may not be as well known as some of the others by his name, uh, but you'll know his songs. Robbie Dupree. I love Robbie Dupree. Steal Away. He, that's quintessential. Quintessential Yacht Rock. And Robbie is one of the funniest cats that you will ever meet. Is he? And whenever we do something with Robbie, everybody laughs. He's just smart. And well, how funny. many players are in the actual review before you guys get it? Uh, I think there are seven. There's... Uh, you know, one main guitar player, but the, it's led by two guys named Peter Olson and uh, Nick, his partner. They really invented the band, and they lead the band. The band, I think, is a, normally a seven-piece band, although sometimes they add a horn section. Sometimes they add some background singers. It depends on how big the gig is. I've always wondered this about cover bands. Do they have to pay rights to do their material? No. The way that works is supposedly the venue keeps track of what songs are played at the venue. Oh, that's and so they funny. pay either ASCAP or BMI, and they're supposed to present wow. the set list or whatever. That doesn't work out very well either. Now, do any like, rich corporate types sort of rent a boat to tour New York Harbor and hire you guys? Well, it wouldn't be that's a great you idea. guys, but it'd be those guys. Yeah. They do a lot of corporate stuff, and they get paid very well for those kinds of things. Because to actually experience it on a yacht mm-hmm. would be a little piece of heaven right yeah. there. Yeah. Fritz, let's invest. I'm ready to yeah. do it. I want to hear them. I hope they come. I hope they're they, they'll be back here. in L.A. They're really excellent. I mean, you know, just to call them a cover band doesn't really do them justice because uh, Nick, who's the lead singer, and, and, and Peter, who sings, they have a ton of personality. The thing that makes them great is they walk that line just like you have to with Yacht Rock. It's like their tongue is firmly in cheek, <laughs> but they do give a certain deference to it at the same time. And they their walk musicianship that line, is great, and they, they play well with the They music. walk that line just perfectly. Plus, it probably drafts on this thing. I've talked about this with other musical artists. It's astonishing how much the boomers and the slightly pre-boomers will pay on these tours. Like the Eagles are getting $1,500 a seat for these tickets. And not all. for me, they're not. not <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, though? These bands that are they're doing the, you know, the constant touring and the Rolling Stones, they're just, it's insane the amount of money people are paying for concerts. It is. And, and, and uh, I think, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but I think part of it has to do with the promoters, too. Because by the time you get the promoter, uh, which, you know, are usually these big companies, and then you get the, the people who sell the tickets, the, the you know, ticket masters, et cetera, and everybody takes peace, and the band oh, gets yeah. paid very well, and, you know, it's, it's big, big business now. Yeah, yeah, it's big business. And I, I think that also, too, like you were talking about the age group that you see, like, I think people can easily enjoy rabbit holes and they can they can become fans of music that was even produced before they were born just by kind of saying oh the person i love 
was influenced by this person who was influenced by this person. You can get there very quickly, whereas when we were growing up, you really had to collect records and ask the record store if they could send away for something. Well, that that's what I mean about the accessibility that, you know, Spotify and iMusic offers and, and that, you know, it's the world's largest jukebox and you can find whatever you want on it. And also... You know, for me, I found that when the song was in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, suddenly I had a, a young audience that discovered the song entirely from that movie. So when people find out that you did Brandy, mm-hmm. what do they want to tell you? What do they want to ask you? <laughs> uh, it, de- it depends. It depends who. I mean, I don't really, I mean, I'm kind of like a stay-at-home guy. I mean, I'm not really in the music business anymore. I go out and do these gigs and these dates from time to time. But I don't interact with fans that often. I have a website. I have a, a Facebook page. I'm not real aggressive about it, although I try to answer most of the people who, who contact me. And most of them are, you know, just pretty complimentary and say how much they like the song, which is you know, great. I'm sure there are some sincere memories connected with that song from. Or discovering it, newly discovering yeah. it, being mm-hmm. excited about it. I mean, you know, I'll get a bunch of stuff on, on Facebook or on the website that says, God, I, you know, first time I heard this song was in Galleons, and man, they said it was the greatest song ever written. Man, it was great. You know? Well, then they agree with me. <laughs> I want to know if you've received any brandy artwork, because I think it would inspire paintings. I really haven't. I think I, I got one drawing once that was really kind of nice. Uh, then there was a funny thing that a radio station on Long Island did. They called me up and they said, we're going to do a, uh, a thing on the web where everyone is going to describe what Brandy looks like. <laughs> and it was wow. really fun because, you know, there were a lot of responses. And, they, you know, each one, of course, was totally different. You know, she's a tall blonde. No, she's a short red. You know, it was... Either it, their girlfriend or their idealistic girlfriend. Right. Yeah, exactly. But you know who Brandy kind of is? She's kind of like Kitty in Gunsmoke. <laughs> Good yeah. Because, you know, Marshall Dillon's not marrying Kitty. Uh, he needs to ride. Uh, his love, his life, and his lady is his horse. <laughs> Don't let your, uh, what is it? Don't let your, your, your sons grow up to be cowboys? Yes, that, yeah. exactly. Well, yeah. Elliot, it's just been a delight. Now, you can visit Elliot on his Facebook page, which we're going to uh, put in our show notes, and his YouTube page, which you, his wife films, and he's <laughs> creating content constantly, so you can enjoy it. Uh, all of that and become his friend online and here come our closing credits we would love for you to join us online on instagram and twitter where we are at media path pod and on facebook where we are media path podcast you can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our youtube channel media path podcast we would love to know what media you've been enjoying you can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com we want to thank our guest elliot Lurie. our team includes dina friedman francesco demanda John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker, here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. But first... And if you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us a great deal to be more discoverable by potential new listeners. If you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts, and if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. We have lots of great binge-worthy stuff. Uh, wonderful artists, Diane Warren and Gary Puckett and the Cow Sills and Elliot Lurie and all these wonderful people. Going back to the very beginning, you'll hear exciting and exclusive interviews with Henry Winkler and Keith Morrison from Dateline. 
Thank you so much for spending an hour with us, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. Be safe. Thanks for listening. Hit subscribe. That was great, Ellie. Thank you. Thank you. That was great.